Hi, I'm Dr. Troni Lodog, physician, teacher, and author. I want to thank you for joining me for today's chat, brought to you by The Vitamin Shop. There's no question that people feel stressed out today. They just feel overwhelming amounts of stress. I see this when patients see me as a physician, but also hear it as I travel around the country and lecture and teach in different areas, different geographical locations. It doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter men and women, young or old. People are feeling the impact of just this unrelenting stress. One of the questions I often ask the audience when I'm teaching is, do you believe that today people are more stressed than they were in the 1930s? This is always an interesting question because it's provocative. And there's no right or wrong answer. Many young people believe that the stress is so much greater today, and the older people are somewhat divided on whether there was more stress in the 1930s. We have to remember, my grandmother, I've read her journal backwards and forwards, and she has described very vividly what life was like in southwestern Kansas in the 1920s and the 1930s. The Great Dust Bowl happened in Oklahoma. People lost their farms. There was no work. My grandmother moved to Wichita, Kansas, and there they lost everything from their home when the river flooded. Then they moved back to southwestern Kansas, and the Depression hit. And when the Depression hit, they had burned up all the furniture that they had in their home just to try to keep themselves warm. And when they realized they could not take care of their children— they sent my grandmother, who was 11 at the time, to go live with a rancher and his family so that they could feed her in exchange for her cooking and cleaning and taking care of children and doing all the things that was needed to be done. Her brother was a few years older than her, and he died during this period of time from a ruptured appendix, but he had also been sent out because they just couldn't feed the children. They kept the three younger kids at home. My grandmother, when she describes this in her journal, all I could think was, oh my gosh, 11 years old, doing all the things like a grown-up would do? And how hard that must have been on these families. But my grandmother also in her journal, as she moves through the journal and sort of what goes on in her life after that, she talks about the fact that everybody was in it together. Everybody went through the Dust Bowl, and everybody went through the Depression, and everybody was in the same boat. They knew they were in the same boat. People were trying to help each other. Maybe the rancher didn't need my 11-year-old grandmother there cooking and cleaning, but he also wasn't going to let some little kid just starve to death. Everybody was trying to help each other. After the Depression, we had the war. There was just a big stressful period of time. People had no money, lost everything were starving. There were no jobs. So when I ask people, was it more stressful then? They have to use their imagination because unless they know somebody who lived during that time, it's hard for us today to even wrap our heads around what that might have been like. The audience then invariably swings to how stressful it is today. And when you ask them why it's so stressful, they usually give the same things, too much work, too much to do, too much technology, just too much, too much, too much, too fast, too much. That seems to be this underlying sentiment that people have. 
I actually think that it's a perfect storm that's happening right now that is culminating in the way we feel. And when I mean this perfect storm, I mean it's the perfect storm of a whole bunch of unhealthy behaviors that are all happening at the same time. Our diet is terrible. We do not eat just lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. We're not eating anywhere close to seven to nine servings per day, which is probably the real amount that we need to be healthy. We're not loading our plate half full of berries and greens and broccolis and cauliflowers. We don't eat organic. We eat a lot of processed food that doesn't resemble anywhere near how it would look coming from the ground or closer to nature. We have a lot of nutritional deficits as the result of poor eating habits. We are very sedentary. We do not move like we used to. There was no cars. People had to walk everywhere. There was no electric washing machine. You had to scrub it on a scrub board. You had to garden. You had to collect eggs. You had to milk your animals. There was so much that was involved in just the everyday life that made you be physically active. Today, we sit at desks. Much of our work is done standing or sitting in one place. Exercise is protective to the brain. It's protective for our mood. And it's one of the best ways to help us relieve our stress. And yet, we don't. We don't exercise anywhere near enough. And this is trickling down to our children as well. Physical education classes are getting fewer and fewer and farther between. Kids are expected to sit for eight hours at a desk and learn so they can take standardized tests that will make them smart and make us all feel good that they all passed a standardized exam. But if we go back to the ancient Greeks who said that you can only have a strong mind if you have a strong body, we're at danger of having neither. We don't get a lot of sleep. Even when we sleep, it's disrupted. We don't feel rested in the morning. 90 million Americans struggle with some type of sleeping problem. They don't report that they feel rested in the morning. I gave up a long time ago asking people how many hours they sleep. I don't care how many hours you sleep. My question is this. When you waken in the morning, do you feel rested? Are you struggling to get out of bed? Do you keep hitting the button on your alarm or your smartphone telling you, give me another 20 minutes to snooze because I just can't get up? When you've had a good night's rest, you can get up in the morning. You feel rested and you're ready for the day. And many of us don't sleep well for a whole variety of reasons. For a whole variety of reasons. There's definitely too much screen time. We're on our laptops and our smartphones and tablets until late at night. And it's a form of escape in some ways for some of it. And others, we're still working. We're still answering emails. We're still getting work done at 10 o'clock at night. And then we think if we take a little sleeping pill, whether it's over-the-counter prescription or herbal, that suddenly, you know, going 90 miles an hour and doing work until 10 o'clock, we take something and suddenly we'll just go to bed and fall asleep. It's crazy. Too much screen time, too much of this blue light coming right at our retinas, our phone just right in front of our face, our tablet right in front of our face, 
lights on, television, all of these suppress melatonin. We don't get that circadian rhythm that tells us it's time to sleep. Melatonin, people take melatonin supplements thinking they're like a sleeping pill. They're not, folks. Melatonin normally rises when the sun sets, when darkness hits, and our body temperature goes down, and we begin to slow down and we prepare for sleep. That's what melatonin does. Have you ever wondered why at 6 o'clock at night you're sitting on the couch and you're totally warm? And then at 11 o'clock at night when you lay down to sleep in the same clothes, you need a blanket? Part of that is your body temperature going down as you prepare to enter into sleep. We do a lot of things to suppress melatonin. And that disruption of that circadian rhythm may be in part why we do not sleep well. I think many of us feel the effects of stress because we don't have the same social support that we did when my grandmother was young. Interesting when she said we were all in it together. We live in a divided nation in many ways today. Politics divide us, race divides us, economics divide us. Instead of us finding our common humanity and the things that bring us together, we continue to look for the things that divide us. That itself is stressful. We need to find common ground with each other because, as my grandmother said, they were all in it together. Well, you know, we're all in this together, too. Social support is powerful for us. There was a study done by Brigham Young University that actually was more than 140 studies that looked at the effects of people who identified as feeling socially isolated and their impact on health. They found that it was as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, as dangerous as being an alcoholic, as harmful as never exercising, and twice as dangerous as being obese. All mammals crave connection. We need it. And I think human beings are particularly vulnerable to this, and women perhaps even more than men, because we are hardwired for intimacy. We're hardwired for connection. Once when I was teaching a class and I was trying to help them understand why it feels so painful to be socially isolated and left out and set aside and feel lonely, why that actually physically hurts, why people experience that as physical pain. I said, I want you to imagine, especially the women in the class, I want you to imagine you're living 3,000 years ago. Or even imagine you're living today. And we drop you out in the middle of Montana. Hundreds and hundreds of miles from anyone. And we tell you, good luck. You're on your own. How are you going to feed yourself? How are you going to provide shelter? How are you going to protect yourself from predators, whether they be four-legged or two-legged? How would you survive? When I was a kid in Sunday school, one of the things we learned about in the Old Testament was that if you weren't getting stoned, they were basically banishing you, right? And I never really fully understood what that meant to be banished. But basically what it comes down to is that banishment often meant death. Biologists believe that human beings, and particularly women who are particularly vulnerable, experience isolation, banishment, loneliness as 
very physically painful so that we try to do everything we can to avoid it. When I say social isolation, being bad for your health, all this connectivity with Facebook and Twitter and all this kind of stuff, that's not intimacy. That's not even connection. It may be a way you keep up with your brother in Des Moines or something, but I mean, it's not the intimacy that comes when you sit looking at each other's face or you're talking on a telephone and you hear the inflection in somebody's voice. You can't experience that in that sort of deep way. I think that when we look at the culmination of all of these things, diet, nutritional deficiencies, lack of exercise, poor sleep, not enough good, healthy social support, too much screen time. And maybe I would also add to that this very strong emphasis on knowing and having. I don't know that that is unique to the United States, but I will tell you there is a strong emphasis. You got to know it. You got to always know the answer. Well, folks, we're always one question away from complete ignorance. That's the truth. We're one question away. If somebody asked me today, without being able to use any tools, what is the square root of 962,422, I would look at them and go, complete ignorance, I have no idea. If they asked me the gestational length of a hippopotamus, I would be, I have no idea. I'm a smart person. I know a fair amount of things. I don't know everything. And there's something powerful when you sort of let go of having to know everything and you more fully step into sort of saying, I'm always one question away from not knowing, and that's okay. It's okay. I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. It's okay to have more questions maybe even than answers. And the other piece of that is on having. You need to do this so that you can have money to do that. I had a patient who just struggled with their finances so much. They struggled and struggled and finally had to go through bankruptcy. Both of them had had cancer. It was just a horribly painful thing to watch this older couple who I helped to care for. And then they got out of the bankruptcy and they never let anybody know. They didn't want anybody to know they'd been bankrupt because that would be shameful. And then as soon as they got out from their bankruptcy, even without having more money, they went and bought a BMW. And they wanted to show me their BMW. They were so proud of their BMW. And I just smiled. And there was a part of me that just realized that for whatever voices spoke to them inside, it was about status. It was about having. I think that we have a lot of emphasis on knowing and having. And that in many ways, that can keep us from experiencing real health. And I think it adds to the burden of stress because then it's never enough. You're constantly wanting and you're constantly needing more. To know more, to have more. So when I think, why is stress a national epidemic? I think it's the culmination of many, many things. It's not just one. It's many. We live our lives in slivers. We live in slivers of time. We're constantly moving from one thing to the next. We want to eat healthy, but we're looking for the quickest place to go stop and grab food to take on the way home. We want to exercise. We're trying to get fitness apps to help us do it, but there's never enough time. 
We're trying to stay connected with one another, but we run out of hours. What is this leading to? It is leading to a significant rise in anxiety and depression. And I don't think that this is just that we're overdiagnosing it. I think that we're actually seeing more anxiety and depression in our people. If we look at the data from the CDC, 11% of Americans now, 12 years and older, take antidepressant medications. That's a 400% increase from the late 1980s. In a relatively short amount of time, we're prescribing 400% more antidepressants. 270 million prescriptions per year. One in four women between the ages of 40 and 60 take an antidepressant. Anxiety disorders, the prevalence in kids 9 to 17 is now 13%, and one in eight adolescents suffer from major depressive disorder. Wow. When I say that I think stress is a national epidemic, I think that there's a lot of things now that are contributing to feeling anxious and feeling depressed. You've got to step back for a moment. I had a woman recently after the election. She was not able to go to work. The person that she voted for did not win. And she was just incapable of going to work. She wasn't sleeping. She was looking for sleeping medication to kind of help her sleep. She was crying. She was so anxious. You know, I said, I'm really hearing the fullness of your emotions and what you're feeling. Can you share with me how your life personally on a real level, on a tangible level, changed from four days ago to today? What personally is dramatically different? And of course, she looked at me and she started going on and on about the elect, you know, and then I said, no, I really, I, I hear your passion. I feel that. I'm wanting you to help me understand how has it changed in your personal life in these four days? What personally in a tangible way has changed? And she couldn't answer it. My point is not to diminish the sadness or the disappointment that anybody might have from a large circumstance that didn't go the way that they wanted to. Clearly, people get very emotionally invested in all kinds of things. But that's where anxiety really takes root, is because much of the anxiety is driven for things that are outside of our control. Her not going to work or not sleeping actually only injured her. It changed nothing in the grand scheme of things. Now, more productive would have been for her, instead of not going to work or feeling all this, was to write letters or to go out and actually be part of a protest or to be a part of something that felt like she was doing something about it in a way that was expressing her disappointment or her sadness. I see this all the time, this anxiety from just all these worries of all these possible things that could happen. There is an old saying that Mark Twain had, and I won't quote it directly, but I want to share it and the meaning of it. I have suffered a great many misfortunes in my life, most of which never happened. I want you to think about that for a moment. I have suffered a great many misfortunes, but most of them never happened, but I still suffered. 
I was anxious about it. I was anxious that I wasn't going to get the promotion. I was anxious that my son and daughter-in-law might get a divorce, or I was worried about my grandchild. All the things we worry about that are in the future, that we can't really do a whole lot about. That's what drives anxiety and depression. Depression, in a similar way, but oftentimes depressed about the future, but often driven by our past. And the things that we carry with us, the weights that we carry with us from our past, that make us feel shame or that make us feel less than, all of these things get wrapped up. And I think stress is like the great amplifier. It turns up the volume, if you will. So if we're already feeling kind of nervous about something, and now my deadlines are coming due, and my husband and I are fighting with one another, and that stress turns up the volume. So I feel more anxious, or I feel more depressed, or I feel more of you fill in the blank. Much of what's making us sick is not going to be made better by just more medication. For me, stress, a lot of this comes back to finding strategies that allow us to manage our stress more effectively. And those are the things like going out and exercising and being active with your friends and keeping social engagements. If somebody hasn't invited you to go out, well, then invite a coworker to go for lunch. If nobody's invited you to come do something, then invite a couple friends to come over for a board game and margaritas. There's so many ways to do something that will allow you greater connection and greater connectivity, but you have to often take those initial steps if they're not coming to you. I believe one day a week we should just be technology-free, and I mean that, one day a week. Maybe you say, I'm going to check in, you know, Last thing on Friday night, but on Saturday, I'm just not checking any technology. We've started doing this on Sundays, and let me tell you, the first four or five weeks of trying it, I felt like an addict that needed to keep going to check my email that somehow I might be missing something super important. What if somebody needs me? What if one of my staff members needs me? What if my parents need me? And then I'm like, you know, they all know how to use the telephone. But I stayed off my technology. No. Cell phone, no email, no Facebook, no nothing. And I got to tell you, the difference that started to happen in just a few weeks was enormous. If you can't unplug for a day, I would ask why. I'm not sure any of us are that important. You can tell people I'm going to be offline on Sunday. If it's an emergency, call me on the phone. Otherwise, I'll talk to you Monday or whatever day it is. I think a gratitude journal goes a long way to helping manage stress. I think that it allows us to count our blessings instead of the things that are lacking. There is a saying, I think it was from Johann Gartner. It said, to speak gratitude is courteous and pleasant. To enact gratitude is generous and noble. But to live gratitude is to touch heaven. Every day, there is something to be grateful for. Every day. The lady that helped you bag your groceries at the store. You got home and your five-year-old made you a picture at school. I love daddy or I love mommy. You come home to a house 
that is safe and secure, that your children or your husband or your wife or your parents made it through another day healthy and whole. I do believe that to live gratitude, to find it in the everyday stuff of our lives, is a big counterbalance for stress. And one that, if we just practiced it more, might make us feel more whole. There's an old proverb, if you will, about being thoughtful about what you feed. One evening, an old Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside of people. He said, My son, the battle is between two wolves that live inside us all. One is evil. It is anger and envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. The other is good. It is joy and peace and love and hope and serenity and kindness and generosity and truth and compassion and faith. The grandson thought about it for a while. And then he asked his grandfather, Which wolf wins? The old Cherokee simply replied, The one that you feed. I want you just to hold on to that thought as you go about your week. And I want you to think about what is it that you're feeding in your life? Whatever you feed will grow. Do you want to sow seeds of gratitude and love and calm? Or do you want to seed those feelings of anger and resentment and regret and all of those other things, those messages that actually keep us from feeling and experiencing the most that we are in our lives? Stress is real. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I don't think life is going to get slower and calmer unless you want it to in your own life. We're going to remain busy. That's the state of our world. You have to figure out how you're going to be in that world and thrive. I want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy day and your very busy week to join me. I hope that you go forward this week, fill your life with inspiration and things that truly nourish you feed you so that you can thrive every day. Until next time.